Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Brian Levitt with us, working today, Oppenheimer Funds, on international uh, investment. We've got a lot to be thank you, thankful for, but for those in the market, mostly what we're thankful for is courage. It is the most unloved bull market still, isn't it? It is, and it has been for a long time. I would say we're going on years now that investors have been asking me, is it going to be over? And in actuality, if you look at the macro environment right now with growth above trend in over 60% of the countries around the world, that is a better macro backdrop than we've had in some time. Um, Max Roser, who, who does brilliant work out on Twitter and charts, I'll retweet out his work, folks. He's in England. Just I think he's at Oxford. He does just great work. He said the poorest Portugal's poverty of 1950 was worse than any country today. I mean, it is a more prosperous world, a more prosperous emerging markets. How does Oppenheimer Funds invest differently now in emerging markets than you did 10 and 20 years ago? Well, we've always been looking for exceptional companies in the emerging markets, true growth companies in the emerging markets. So I think it's more that maybe some of the investors in the emerging markets have come to us rather than us change our process significantly. You know, people usually thought of emerging markets as state-owned companies and big energy names, and that's basically what the indices are comprised of. We've always looked for growth in the emerging markets, and um, as you've seen, you know, particularly with companies in China this year and other parts of the emerging markets, uh, very, very strong returns as investors look for true growth in a slow growth world. Brian, uh, good morning to you, or good, good afternoon from London, in fact. <laughs> when you're looking at, at emerging markets, are you looking at a particular asset class or are you investing cross-asset? So at Oppenheimer Funds, we have um, investments across the emerging markets. We run the largest um, equity uh, emerging market fund, uh, and we also uh, manage money in the emerging market debt space as well. But what we're focusing on as investors is a very nice macro backdrop in the emerging markets, the likes of which we haven't had in a handful of years. You have um, you know, China slowing, but to a what we believe is a higher quality level of growth. You have Latin America recovering. You have the oil producers recovering. And what most and, and as important, you have inflation, which has come down in the emerging markets, which has allowed policymakers to be more accommodative. So on the fixed income side, attractive real yields and currencies that were beaten up. On the equity side, very nice uh, growth stories, both on the macro side, but at the individual company level as well. As we look ahead to the Fed minutes coming out later, how much of a risk to emerging markets does the tightening cycle from the Fed pose? Is it as much of a risk as it used to be? It is not as much as a risk as it used to be. If you remember the taper tantrum in 2013, real yields in the emerging markets were close to, you know, one or below one. If you look at when the Fed raised rates for the first time in 2015, real yields in the emerging markets were very low as well. So what that meant was in inflation was, was generally high in the emerging markets, and it wasn't attractive for investors to be there to the extent that it is now. So you had capital flight. At this point in the cycle, with inflation significantly down in the emerging markets, you have real yields uh, on the order of 3% or so in aggregate across the emerging markets. 
So as the Fed raises rates, um, which we believe will ultimately be a, continue to be gradually and slowly, um, there is less like you are significantly less likely to see capital flight from the emerging markets. But, but I'm glad that Nair brings this up because, uh, to be honest, I've been remiss in not doing a real yield analysis. Let's back up to Investment 101. Why should our listeners look at inflation-adjusted yields versus the nominal yield, which is where the corporate officer lives every moment? Well, I mean, you want your standard of living to improve. So if you can, if you can generate income above the rate of inflation, your standard of living is improving. Some of the difficulties that investors have right now in the United States, if you look at a 10-year Treasury rate of, I think, around 235, 240, with inflation of around 2, that's akin to running on a treadmill. You're not really getting anywhere, and you're taking on interest rate so sensitivity. So then what's the real yield in the Philippines or Poland or, you know, name your other favorite country? So if you look in aggregate across the emerging markets, yeah. you're at about 3% real yield. So I'm going to pick up 200 basis points plus two full percentage points of real yield. Do you hedge that against the currency risk? We can hedge that against the currency risk. We will use currencies as a lever to pull to drive returns. What you have right now is a, a generally weaker dollar and currencies across the emerging markets that are um, generally undervalued to the U.S. dollar on a purchasing power parity basis. So we believe that currency is additive to fixed income uh, emerging market returns at this point in the cycle. On the equity side, we believe that hedging currencies adds cost and complexity mm -hmm. to the portfolios, and over longer term time periods is generally a wash. So on fixed income, we have the ability um, to, to hedge currencies, and we do so at certain points. Um, on the, on the equity side, uh, we typically do not hedge the currency. Brian, I want to pivot the conversation slightly to, the, to Europe and the U.S. So we keep talking about the relentless flattening of the U.S. yield curve, right? Let's take the twos, tens, for example. Yes. The German twos, tens curve has been flattening as well. But the spread between the two is the most positive since 2006. Does that mean adding duration in Germany suddenly looks relatively cheap, even if absolute yields are well below those in the U.S.? Yeah, it does, but it's not. It's still not a particularly attractive um, uh, investment. Many of the developed market uh, fixed income instruments. I I would say, you know, with regards to the flattening in the United States, I think what it says to me is that the Federal Reserve is ultimately going to have to back off its. Um, off its tightening stance. Uh, I, I, there, there's simply not enough spread between 2 and 10. Uh, the Fed really wants to raise interest rates three, four times in the coming year. You're going to see a flat yield curve. If that were to happen, investors, you're, to your point, might be happy to have some duration in their portfolio. Yeah. If you look at U.S. investors right now, they're short duration. They've been told to be short duration well, for eight years. You know, having some duration in your yeah. portfolio, maybe adding some credit can increase the yield and maybe bring down some vol. It will be interesting to see the 2018 research packets and also how they're amended about April <laughs> of next year. Brian Levitt, thank you so much for the Oppenheimer funds. And thank you to your team. We enjoyed immensely visiting your studios. Why don't you bring in our esteemed petroleum guest? 
<laughs> yeah, um, absolutely fantastic to have Philip Verliger here um, with uh, with us in the London studio. I understand that you're here in London sort of on a Thanksgiving break, but you've really kindly agreed to drop into surveillance because he likes you so much, Tom. You hear that? Happy Thanksgiving, Tom. Well, happy Thanksgiving to you, uh, Mr. Verliger. You know, I I think, Nera, to have Phil Verliger here is to go back to the hindsight of there were very few people doubting $100 oil, and Phil Verliger has consistently doubted Mm -hmm. some of the excesses of of OPEC and a a contrived market for years. Uh, Phil, do you maintain a lower price for oil call this year? Uh, Yes, sir. Uh, It's... Oil prices are going to stay about where they are right now, maybe 50, maybe 60. They, unless uh, uh, so the events in Saudi Arabia, which are the, the really important event, uh, the, the arrest of all the, uh, the wealthy uh, people essentially attempt, uh, trying to extract um, you know, 400 or $600 billion from these people. Uh, if you look at what's going on in Saudi Arabia, you have a country that is strongly uh, opposed to Iran, uh, Syria, and uh, in Lebanon, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and all of those are backed by the Russians. At the same time, Saudi Arabia has been cooperating with Russia to hold up oil prices. The question is, if the Saudis are able to accumulate uh, a substantial amount of cash, this would essentially double the liquidity of the, the central bank from 400 to $800 billion, maybe a trillion. I think their strategy will then change, and they'll probably uh, uh, increase production because they've been watching the Russian steel market share. At at that point, they will be able to go back to the low price scenario for a, uh, for a year or two, push oil on the market, and reestablish a base to grow from in the future. That's really interesting because there have been a lot of expectations ahead of the OPEC meeting ahead of this mo- uh, at the end of this month, and in some ways, you know, you could say that the market has now positioned itself for disappointment almost. I think the market has disappointed. And I don't think the Saudis will do anything right now uh, because what they're doing is essentially trying to extract all this money that they claim has been taken by graft. And that's going to take some time because much of the money is overseas and they can't release these people from uh, from this uh, prison they have them in at at the St. Regis until they've actually gotten the money back to Saudi Arabia. Because once the people are out, they can go to government like the United States or the the English government and say the money was taken from us in duress and the Saudi accounts will be frozen. Mm -hmm. So they need to work it. But if you look, I think the key individual in this whole thing is is not the crown prince, but Adil al-Jabbar, who is the foreign minister and who has been, if you go back to 1990, he was a spokesman when, when they invaded Kuwait. And he, his father was the ambassador to Germany, and he's just a, he's really the leading person, you know, the best, best example is to read an 1500 book by Machiavelli, which really describes what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that changes, that's going to change what happens to prices. But, Tom, I don't think, it, I think the question is, could they go much lower? And the answer is, yeah. probably they can. Well, within that is the elasticity. You talk about the, the desire to drill. And the idea that cash will chase drilling. I get the idea of cash chasing $100 a barrel. Does cash want to chase $57 oil? There, yes. There was a very good presentation that uh, the Energy Information Agency had last week. It's on, on their, uh, it was a webcast. And Reisted, which is a consulting firm that goes down to the very nitty-gritty, laid out a case where at $65 a barrel, 
by the end of 2020, we have 4 million barrels a day of production from, uh, uh, from the Permian. And if it's $35, we're down at 2 million barrels a day. And they did it almost on a well-by-well basis. If you blow this up to the United States, the swing is probably 3 or 4 million barrels a day. So they really need it down. They can make money, according to Reistead and according to everybody else, at, uh, at $50, $55 a barrel. And if you look at the futures market, open interest in contracts expiring more than 12 months is up by almost 60% from this time last year. So a lot of that oil has been hedged through uh, banks or swap dealers and so on. So the next year is already in the can and the production is going to happen. So in terms of the price then, what, what sort of range are we in and for what time period? Well, I, I think the range we're going to be in is uh, upper limit 61, 62. Uh, and it's, it, it, that's, prob- that's Brent or it's WTI Houston. The other thing that's happening is the, the world oil mar- center of the world oil market has swung to Houston. And there's a WTI price in Houston. And the industry is pl- uh, trading there. Cushing has become uh, less relevant, although it's still the hedging market. But, you know, $60 at the top side. Uh, $50 on the low side, again, yeah. assuming Saudi Arabia doesn't do something. And this also yeah. assumes that the economy keeps growing uh, uh, right. and, and holds together, which, of course, is the first sto- first part of the story. Phil, we got uh, two minutes left with you, not even that. And I, I do want to switch to your historic work on NAFTA decades ago. What are the ramifications that you see if the president does away with NAFTA? Um Tom, I've been. I keep looking at that, and I've looked, the more I look at it, the, the more frightened I get. Uh, Why is that? Well, because everything moves back and forth across the border without duty, and once you take NAFTA off, it's the same thing you see over here with Brexit. I don't know what happens. What happens to manufacturing par, uh, production? And I know people have done different numbers. Yeah, my guess is. GDP is two two percentage points lower 12 months after we pulled out of NAFTA. I think it's that much. Be, you know, the agricultural sector is going to suffer dramatically. I think the uh, you know, everybody says, well, autos will do better. No, autos won't because some of the parts are made in Mexico and they can't get them back. I mean, it, you, you, yeah. you, you can't turn the economy out of the dark. I mean, your, your NASH, it's hard to get parts for your NASH. And it's... Um, uh, you know, they're going to have trouble getting parts and they're trying moving manufacturing. Yeah. So it's going to raise costs. And I think it, 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 it's a thing. My plead is don't do it. Yeah, my, my, what I've heard from a couple of people is right where you go, uh, Dr. Verliger, which is the idea of you're going to need a part for that tranny and it ain't going to be there. That's Phil right. Verliger, thank you so much. Honored you, with sir. your visit in London. Really look forward to seeing you in London, New York, Calgary, or where Aspen. Phil Verliger of his own P.K. Verliger, and of course, just wonderful and always controversial on oil. We've, of course, been keeping an eye on Chancellor Philip Hammond's budget. The key thing is that growth forecasts for the UK have been cut. So we've seen a little bit of a dip in sterling, also some curve flattening in gilts uh, on that cut to the growth outlook. But we're also keeping a very close eye on the Brexit developments. And with us to discuss that is Sony Kapoor, Managing Director at Redefine. Sony, great to have you on the programme and good morning 
or afternoon to you rather in London. So when it comes to the Brexit negotiations, we're looking ahead to this December EU summit and it seems like finally the UK has given a little bit of ground on the Brexit bill. Prime Minister Theresa May ready to put more money on the table to settle that divorce bill. How do you see the negotiations going in December? Well, I think they are going to be very fraught and very difficult. And the UK remains in a very tricky situation. So even as uh, we have belatedly accepted that there is a much higher price to be paid for Brexit, mostly relating to existing obligations of the UK, uh, the issue of the Irish border uh, threatens to actually scupper the whole negotiation in December. And the background to that is uh, that the having a border-free crossing between Northern Ireland and, uh, and Ireland in, uh, is an important part of the peace process. And that is non-negotiable. And, of course, if the UK leaves the EU and Ireland will remain in the EU, there will be a border. And the Irish prime minister has rightly intervened to say that he will veto any further negotiation with the UK unless and until the UK is able to give an assurance that there will be no hard border. That, of course, is incompatible with the UK actually leaving the customs union, which Brexiters want the UK to do. And Theresa May has said the UK will do. So money is one part of the discussion where the UK has finally agreed to double its contribution from 20 billion euros they had set to about 40 billion as the starting offer. Yep. But the Irish problem remains completely intractable for now. Right. So how, what are the chances then? What, where would you put it in percentage terms of there actually being a shift to trade talks in December? Uh, I'm without some unexpected solution or mana from heaven dropping down to come up with a reasonable solution to the Irish problem, I would say less than 25%. Right. And already we're hearing uh, that, that certain banks are making contingency plans to start shifting business uh, out of London in the first quarter of next year. That's going to accelerate perhaps then? I think what has happened is, up until about a month back, uh, businesses and banks uh, were waiting and watching to see how things went. But this has been a particularly bad month and a particularly bad week for the UK, uh, with the decision to relocate the European Banking Authority out of London to Paris, the European Medicines Agency out of London to Amsterdam, making Brexit very real, and businesses can no longer sit on their hands and wait to do their contingency planning. They are starting to move, and a lot of the exodus will actually start even before Brexit Day, if and when it does actually happen. Redefine Managing Director Sony Kapoor, thank you so much for talking us through some of the Brexit risks.
what better person to speak to as people around the U.S. get ready for the holiday? Julian Mark Keel, the Points Guy Senior Analyst, with us here on Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning or good afternoon here in the London to you, Julian. How are you doing? <laughs> good morning and <laughs> afternoon to you. <laughs> so... You're the expert here on travel. People are going to be moving around, I mean, unimaginably for me sitting here in London where we're just probably going to go to the pub around the corner and have some dinner. What are your <laughs> top tips for traveling at this time of year? Yeah, when when you're traveling in the holiday season, really any time, but especially during the holiday season, uh, I like to say knowledge is power. Come armed with information. For instance, uh, take a look at the map of the airport that you're going to be in. You're hopefully leaving a little extra time to get there, and to you may end up in the airport for a little longer than you usually do. So make sure you know what food areas are in the airport where you might need to take your children to have a quick uh, drink or a quick bite while you're waiting for the flight. Also, know what... No, 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 no. Julian, uh Julian, no. (laughs) No, when the children are older, when the children are older, they're downstairs in some bar, (laughs) and I'm up in the gold lounge drinking bottled water. That's how it works. Continue, please. That is certainly the ideal way to Yes. But at the very least, then know which lounge is in your terminal and which club you can go to and what will be required for admittance. Uh, Also, in case your flight ends up being delayed or canceled, know what other flights are available with your airline. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be bookable, but what's actually flying. A lot of people rely on the airline agent to tell them what's the next best option, but it helps actually if you already know what flight you would like to be rebooked on and specifically ask for that. They may not Mm -hmm. always do it, but if you go in, uh, it never hurts to ask and it helps to go in knowing what you want. You know, I, I look at this and we're sort of going into the, you know, the holiday season and then I guess we're in the slow season. Let's back up. Are flights cheaper than they were a year ago? You know, flights are not necessarily cheaper or more expensive, but of course, all of those uh, fees that the airlines keep tacking on, and people are not huge fans of them, but the airlines are enormous fans of them because they're generating billions of dollars of extra revenue. Okay, well, Heathrow, let's go to Heathrow right now. Every time Naira flies to New York, she (laughs) insists that the the surveillance Gulfstream avoid Heathrow. Come on, the fees at Heathrow are insane. The fees at Heathrow are a special level of insane because of their departure tax, especially if you're coming out of Heathrow in a premium class like business or first. Even on a points or mileage ticket, you're going to end up paying hundreds of dollars in taxes. For for, uh, Bloomberg 99.1 FM Washington, is Dulles like the airport that needs the most investment right now? You know, actually, I would argue that LaGuardia in New York needs the most investment. It's a small airport that yeah. hasn't really had the investment in years. Dulles is certainly up there. It, it could certainly use a lot of work and a lot of resources put into it. But mm. in my heart, LaGuardia is the one. That, and they are working on LaGuardia, so we'll see how it goes. Julian, you've done some work on the best and worst airlines in the United States and sort of laid out the argument as to whether it's really a case of best and worst or whether it's just customers' perception. When it comes to Thanksgiving, I'm guessing all the excitement, potentially all the stress, if you've got lots of kids running around, might have some impact on your perception. Do airlines airlines actually, do they pull it out of the bag during the holiday or does it all actually fall apart? (laughs) 
you know, it's it's really tough to run an airline. To, to give them credit, they're moving hundreds of thousands of people every day in, in on the most on the safest possible transport that's ever been invented by humankind. And to do all that and keep people happy is a tall order. That's not to say they shouldn't. And some airlines, like in our study, Alaska Airlines, do it better than others, like say Spirit yeah. or Frontier. Um, but it, it's certainly a tall order, and during the holidays, it's even harder right. because of the number of people traveling. Julian Marquille with us, the points guy. Brian Kelly was going to be with us, but he's in Bali on some $149 flight from Dubai. I don't, <laughs> he, really... he wanted to know if you were going to join him, Tom. Yeah, well, yeah, wish that. I mean, kids take all the miles. Uh, Bloomberg <laughs> Surveillance this morning brought to you by the accountants, the advisors at Eisner Amper. The 2017 tax season, it is upon us. Are you ready for the challenges? They are. Visit EisnerAmper.com slash tax reform. Julian, all of this is hinged on charge cards. Who's winning, the banks or the airlines? Ah, the banks are winning as far as getting new customers. And the credit card usage, especially in the U.S., is at record levels. There's a lot of fees being made off of those cards, from annual fees charged to the consumer Mm -hmm. to swipe fees charged uh, at the merchant level. Uh, The airlines are also doing well because, of course, they sell those points and miles to the banks. Uh, But the banks have really, yeah, the banks have really started to develop their own systems like Chase Ultimate Rewards. and American Express membership rewards. So they're trying to bring it in-house as much as they can. Julian, I just want to ask you a quick question on Ryanair. I mean, here in Europe, the short-haul market, the low-cost market, really giving the legacy airlines a run for their money. Is it that situation in the U.S. or not so much? We have a similar situation with Frontier and Spirit on the low-cost end. It's not quite as intense as Ryanair does it. Ryanair is running a Black Friday sale right now with prices as low as $4.99. That's $4.99 or €4.99. So we haven't reached that level yet. Ryanair has a special kind of touch with that. But it's certainly something that the U.S. Airlines see them doing and and either have to compete or match. Mm. Thing is, Ryanair under a lot of challenges at the moment with the pilots' unions. Yes, the pilots are, uh, as many of your listeners may know, the uh, there was a bit of a snafu at Ryanair uh, last month when they had to cancel thousands of flights because, by their own admission, they, the airline, messed up their pilots' holiday schedule. And they ended up canceling 50 or more flights a day for a period of six weeks. Uh, Ryanair didn't do themselves any favors with their customers because, at least at first, they weren't telling their customers more than five days in advance which flights were going to be canceled. Uh, after some uh, strong customer reaction, they reversed that policy and put out a list. But it's come now to a head with the pilots' union. Uh, Ryan Harris uh, traditionally negotiated directly with the members of their airline hubs. In other words, a, a set of about 80 or so groups they would negotiate their contracts with. And that was a bit of a divide-and-conquer strategy because you can play yeah. one off the other. Now, Ryan Ryanair's pilots want to form a single trade union and negotiate with just one committee. Uh, uh, right. Yeah, uh, Julian, just one more question. Our, our perception is pilots make big, big six-figure numbers 
and you know they work like six hours a week. That's not the reality in 2018, is it? It's not, especially when you get down to the regional carriers, where a starting pilot there might only make twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year. How can that be? Wait a minute, stop there. How can that be? I mean, the kid for starters, a kid looks like my grandchild. He's so young. The pilot? Are you telling me the pilot's making twenty eight five a year? In some cases now, because there's been such a pilot shortage uh, recently, they are starting to get sign-up bonuses so that they'll come and work for the regionals. But, uh, yes, when you're starting out and you need your hours and you don't have a lot of time in the cockpit, you, you spend a lot of uh, time in the air for not a ton of money. I know more than one pilot who supplements uh, her income by waitressing. There you go. <laughs> don't be a stranger. <laughs> Tell Brian when he gets back that he needs to go away again on one of his $382 trips to Antarctica. We'd rather talk to him. Julian killed it there. Julian killed the points guy. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.